Immersive Audio Podcast. In conversation with industry thought leaders, practitioners, artists, academics, and entrepreneurs, discussing all aspects of this rapidly evolving industry, from art, science, and business, to practical insights and project case studies. We aim to inform, educate, explore, and unite the community. In this episode of the Immersive Audio Podcast, Alex Bragg talks to a variety of guests about the world of public VR centers. The virtual reality technology is set to transform the location-based entertainment, but it's still in the early stages of establishing itself within the gaming industry. Today, we discuss how VR is changing the way we socialize while playing games, reinventing the escape room experience, and being implemented in sectors such as healthcare, art, and education. When I say the word arcade, you probably think of a huge room lit by the multicolored glow of screens, of the rattle of coins pushed into slots, of beeping machines, shunting joysticks, and the chatter of excited teenagers trying to beat their high score on Pac-Man or Dance Dance Revolution. But above all, you think of the past. Nowadays, though the golden age of amusement arcades has come and gone, VR gaming is on the rise. Now. Rather than staring across the screen, you can cross over yourself, immersing completely in a video game. You can plan your escape from the bowels of an ancient pyramid. You can fight off a horde of marauding zombies. Video games can now be experienced more intensely than ever before. And with multiplayer VR, you can bring your friends along for the ride. One of the main elements of an arcade is the shared experience of going somewhere with your friends and making a memory together. Entrepreneurs, engineers, and even major gaming companies are now incorporating VR into their business models, and public VR centers are springing up in the UK and elsewhere. How do you go about setting one of these places up? What are the challenges in doing so? And could the rise of home VR systems, either PC or console, pose a threat to them? My name is Alex Bragg, and today on the Immersive Audio Podcast, we're going to be exploring public VR centers. First, a little history. Like many technologies we've gotten used to in the modern world, VR is well represented in the realms of fiction. It's a dominant theme in blockbuster movies like The Matrix and Tron, which cemented its place in popular culture. But the technology itself is much older. The Telesphere Mask, the first head-mounted display, or HMD, was invented and patented as early as 1961 and promised to give the spectator a complete sense of reality moving three-dimensional images with 100% peripheral vision, binaural sound sense, and air breezes. In 1968, The Sword of Damocles, widely regarded as the first VR game, marked the first time an HND was connected to a computer. Nearly 20 years later in 1986, 3D polygon graphics were introduced through arcade game Turbo Courier. 30 years on, the most popular HMDs are the Oculus Rift, a kick-started model bought by Facebook in 2014, and the HTC Vive introduced in 2016. Sony's PlayStation VR, also introduced in 2016, 
is the first HMD released specifically for a games console. So get yourself some of these and hook them up to powerful gaming PCs supplied with the latest VR experiences and you have yourself a VR centre. To start with, we spoke to the owner of a centre here in London. Mike Backus of Limitless VR left a career as a city consultant to start a new VR community space. I'm Mike uh, from Limitless VR. I'm uh, the director here. Um, I live in, we, the company's based in Croydon and has been here since uh, for about 14 months or so. The company's been running for just about a year and a half. Yeah. Um, we've got um, six VR units all running on HTC Vives and um, we provide all kinds of games and experiences to, to the general public. I just got a little bit bored of the whole nine to five city lifestyle and was just looking to challenge myself and do something completely new and different that I knew would be lots of fun and that I would uh, have a lot of passion for um, and just uh, take me in a different direction. The first experience was great, but I did, I came off of it, my hands were sweating a bit and I did find it a little bit unnerving at first, but um, once you find the experiences and the games that you like, you will get really immersed into it. Uh, and the majority of people I say, you know, I certainly walked away going, wow, that's incredible. And within a month, I'd gone out and bought a gaming PC and a VR headset for myself. Mike wanted to create a space, much like the arcades of his youth, where people could have a shared experience in each other's presence rather than socialising online. The VR sensor would combine the social dimension of the arcade with the immersive technology of VR. One of the things that really uh, that I wanted to achieve with this place as well was that uh, with my own kids and my nephews, I see them all the time playing games. But they don't play games in the way that we, well, I used to when I was younger. They've got their headphones on, they're plugged into the internet, and whilst they are playing games, they don't seem to socialise in the same way. They socialise over the internet. You need a bigger location where you can have more multiplayer and single-player games. And I think also an opportunity for, for people to get away from playing on the internet and, and in isolation and come into an environment where they can socialise more as well. But to create this kind of environment, you need not just a lot of space, but reliable, high-performance headsets and gaming gear. For Mike, this meant sparing no expense. We use HTC Vive, and so lots of people have asked us why do we use those. And it's mainly because when we were doing our research, um, we were really speaking to companies over in America and Canada, and everyone seemed to go for the HTC Vive. I don't think there's actually much of a difference in the quality of the headset between that and Oculus. We've got HP Omen gaming PCs with i7 processors, and GTX uh, 1080 graphics cards, so they're pretty high-end machines. For each rig that we've got, um, we've got 32-inch TVs so that others can watch what you're experiencing. And um, we use Springboard VR, which is an American-based company for our booking system and for our um, in-headset uh, games launcher. So where most people are constrained by space or expense from experiencing VR in their own homes, VR centers provide a place where they can do so for a reasonable price, in high quality and with high-end gear. But all of the normal problems people associate with VR still apply, and running a place like Limitless presents its own range of challenges. The most common of these is motion sickness, 
Finding yourself in a new reality can be disorienting for many people, and a disconnect between real life and virtual movement can make some people feel ill. There are different types of movement in VR as well. So some games use a gliding uh, effect. Uh, I th although that, in some ways, that's good because you literally move through the game um, at the, uh, as if you were walking. But because you're gliding, your legs aren't moving. Your, your legs aren't moving. So some people may feel like they're going to tip over. Uh, other people will again feel a bit queasy from it. And it is that whole thing of um, you, 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 your brain is saying that your legs should be moving, but they're not. Uh, and that's why I think you get the, the sickness. And also with some of those, uh, you know, the, the games that haven't been developed well enough, the frame rates aren't good enough in there, or there's something in something that's making people feel a bit queasy. All of the games, we, we test them fully. Um, if we find, if even one of our team feels a little bit sick, generally we won't put that game on uh, because we want people to have a, a great experience. There are a few games which it's sometimes a bit hard to judge. So we have a game called Skyfront VR, which are flying around, shoot them up. And generally people are finding it. But we have had the odd person who's played it for like half hour, 40 minutes, come off and then felt quite ill. At Limitless VR, Mike makes use of a specific VR experience to test customers' vulnerability to motion sickness. One of the most popular things we have in, in the shop is a thing called Richie's Plank Experience. And that's not even a game. What that is, is you go up in a virtual lift and then the doors open up and then there's a virtual plank out of the building 150 metres up. And, uh, well, my wife can't do it because she's scared of heights. Uh, we've had people come in here and it's taken them like five minutes to walk the plank, even although they know it's virtual and then they're in a shop in Croydon. They, it, it, it's, it fools your, your brain, and your eyes and your brain are fooled so much that I think your inner fears kick in and, and some people can do it, some people can't. We, we often use the Richie's Plank experience as the first game because it's a simple thing. And like I said, it shows people how immersive it is, but then they have the flying element in that. And that bit we use to judge what people are like um, with motion in VR. And if they look really unsteady, then we tend to steer them away from ones where there's a lot of movement. But for Mike, the biggest problem, particularly in a public VR space, is customers' self-consciousness about putting on the helmet and trying to break out of the technology's video gamey image. People, I think, are still um, a bit embarrassed to put a headset on. Um, or um, they, they, they'll they say, oh, I'm not a gamer, and therefore decided that's not for them. But they don't realise that there are other things to do. So like I said, we've got these kind of, you know, we've got music videos, we have short movies, we have puzzle type games as well. And we have a lot of multiplayer games as well. So there, and, and a lot of those are not. Um, what you'd call your typical um, shoot-em-ups. For this reason, he's not a fan of the term VRcade. VR is more than just gaming, I think. You know, and, we, and we here at Limitless, we try to... We don't actually call ourselves a VRcade because we don't actually... We, didn't, we don't want to be thought of in that way. So we, we like to call ourselves an entertainment centre or a place for, to come and experience VR could be applied to lots and lots of different things. Um, and to, if you put the word arcade on it, then it conjures up old 80s ideas of a dark arcade, lots of neon lights, a place where just teenagers go and play. 
Uh, and that's not what we're about. Another dimension that separates Limitless VR from a normal arcade is the introduction of an alcohol premises license. So when we first started, we didn't have a drinks license because we thought, oh no, alcohol and VR, bad mix. But uh, like I said earlier, um, I think we, you, we can draw, you know, it's a bit like going to the cinema or going to the bowling alley. People don't go there for a whole night of drinking. They go along to do something. And then they, some people like to have a drink along, you know, alongside. So that's why we've, we then went towards having a bit of a bar. Uh, we also do a lot of uh, team socials, corporate dues. So there's demand for, for alcohol. Whilst a lot of our business on a Saturday and Sunday during the day is kids' parties, um, in the evenings we'll get a slightly older crowd who are just, uh, and we certainly find with um, the, the millennials or the 20-somethings that, um, that uh, whilst they don't necessarily want to spend the whole evening in the pub drinking alcohol, they might be might quite happy to come in here, play some games, listen to some great music and, and have the odd, odd beer or two. For Limitless VR, the bar came about as the business grew. But what if the very idea of your VR centre was to combine gaming with the social environment of a pub? What unique challenges could the combination of alcohol and VR pose? To get an idea of the challenges of running a VR pub, we spoke to the founder and owner of Interpub Gaming, a chain of VR pubs based in London. We basically went from uh, October 2016 to the end of 2017, really with, with a single location. Uh, and then uh, I think it was in uh, November, December, uh, we then basically opened another three sites. Um, so we had two, two sites, one, uh, one in Acton at the Aeronaut, and then we had uh, another site down in Brighton uh, at the World's End pub down there. And then we did a, a residency in Elephant and Castle for a year. Anthony's first introduction to VR came through Richie's Plank experience, to which Interpub Gaming's co-founder introduced him. The first VR game that I tried, um, my introduction to, to proper room scale, uh, was Richie's Plank experience. And uh, Oliver, uh, the other co-founder, he uh, actually had a plank, a wooden plank there at the time. So it was, uh, it was, it was, <laughs> it was pretty incredible, really, because... Um, you know, I could, I could feel the plank. Uh, and, you know, obviously when you go up on the lift, um, you're not, I don't know what I was kind of expecting to, to, to happen. I didn't quite appreciate the power of VR until the point which I actually walked out onto that plank. Um, and Ollie introduced a completely different immersion, which was uh, to have a fan there as well. So as soon as those... Um, the elevator doors open, you know, I got the shot of wind up, and up underneath my, my chin and it was kind of, yeah, it was a, I was a bit disorientated to begin with and it was, it kind of had this, uh, it had a very strange impact on me. Like Limitless VR, the Interpub Gaming Enterprise represents an enormous investment in terms of time, man hours and money spent on high-end gaming gear. We build our own uh, rigs uh, from the ground up um, it's based on server technology. Um, and the reason for that is just the, uh, the, the increase in uptime. I mean, we, we run our machines uh, 24-7. We don't turn them off ever um, unless the power goes out. Um, but, uh, you know, traditionally we'll go for 
um, uh, uh, every quarter or you know 90 days um, and we'll do my maintenance after after that kind of period and that reduces the downtime completely um, and then we have uh, the machines are basically high density so we uh, have you know anything between two and four graphics cards powering uh, you know the respective headsets uh, during that time from a single box um, so very very high end people generally aren't doing that most arcades aren't doing that um, the costs themselves are um, to, to build a machine like that uh, is pretty extensive but you know in terms of when you're reducing the amount of motherboards and you're reducing the power supplies and you know the memory and things like that um, you make quite a lot of uh, cost benefits there but while Richie's Plank experience is a solo experience, for Anthony, the social aspect of VR is more important to his business. In fact, the only games on offer at Interpub Gaming are multiplayer. We only really provide uh, social VR now. Um, so from our perspective, the games are basically from two to four people. Um, but we also do Interpub Gaming, so it's pub versus pub. Um, we actually held the first uh, esports competition that was between pubs. Uh, I think that was last year, which was uh, pretty incredible. That's the great thing about pub VR is that you know you can go and have a few drinks. You can be in that kind of social environment with your friends, um, both drinking, uh, spectating, and you know playing as well, which is great. But the relationship between alcohol and VR can be tricky and requires a higher standard of health and safety. So the health and safety was uh, probably the biggest thing, the biggest challenge for us in terms of uh, operating a VR arcade uh, inside the pub with people that, you know, uh, obviously <laughs> at points under the influ influence of alcohol. And I think just in terms of uh, designing a system and putting it together that would allow us to cater for that kind of environment as well, that was pretty, that was pretty difficult. We're very, very careful in terms of like the kind of... Uh, operating procedure, procedures that we have um, and, uh, you know, just maintaining that health and safety aspect. So we have harnesses for people um, with uh, almost like a kind of a fall arrest system that stops people from falling over if they are too drunk. Um, and, and to be fair, most people who uh, are in this kind of environment come here to predominantly play the games anyway. So it's not, it's not, Terrible. The risk of motion sickness is, of course, a given with VR. Combined with the loss of reflexes and disorientation that comes with alcohol use, the risk becomes even greater and means that Anthony has to be selective about the games he puts on at his pubs. It's been very limited um, in terms of the motion sickness aspect for us because we curate the games extremely carefully. Um, we don't do any uh, driving games or simulator-based games at all. Um, so it's only uh, games where you're basically standing uh, and you are moving yourself within the environment. And that's really key to arcade's uh, success. Um, any game that basically introduces motion sickness, especially around alcohol, is a no-go. Interpub Gaming's inclusion of alcohol means that its owners have to be careful in how much physical movement they can allow. But other centres offer a more free-roaming experience. My name is Alex Tarupa. Uh, I'm from DNA VR. So my, my first uh, VR experience was actually in a VR arcade in Lincoln. 
uh, because that was one of the first places in the UK that uh, started offering that. And um, the game was quite simple. Again, it was a sim- simple um, robot shooter. Uh, you're approached by hordes of robots and you just have to kill them all and don't die while whilst you're doing that. So simple task. Um, but when you put on the headset, when you see your virtual hands holding pistols, when you see that if you're making a step in your physical world that it's matched accurately in in the virtual world, uh, after a few minutes, you just forget where you are. You start ducking, crawling, hiding behind virtual objects, and uh, you just you just forget where you are. That's why I hit the other two co-founders who came with me like at least a few times with the controller because I just forgot they were there. I thought there were robots somewhere there around, but not real people who were sitting and making fun of me. And uh, I was like, I'm not a big gamer, but I wanted to carry on playing out for hours because. Uh, Eventually, it became rather than a gaming experience. It was a, a surviving experience where I had to to just kill them all, or otherwise I'll be dead. I myself was was so so surprised how immersive it was, how real it was in terms of what I felt and uh, how how it all looked like. And we realized quickly that. Um, it can be used in so many different ways from gaming, entertainment, to education, to even art. When we started, uh, the name VR Arcade made sense, right? You have a selection of games, people understand what an arcade is, and they would also probably get what a VR Arcade is. It's like an arcade, but with a twist. But now we see uh, that there are a lot of experiences that aren't, don't actually fall into the kind of gaming setup. So we have uh, educational experience, we have arts experience, we have VR escape rooms, and uh, the word VR center would make way more sense. Also, we work with schools, we work with different institutions, we work with King's College, and uh, they don't feel too comfortable coming to an arcade, but they would go to a VR center. Instead of having the gaming PCs separate from the players, DNA VR in London lets customers carry them around on their backs. This means, given enough space, players can run around, experiencing a virtual landscape to their heart's content. You might be familiar with the concept of an escape room, where players work together using brain and brawn to break out of confinement in a small space. Alex wanted to bring this idea into a VR setting. The Wife Pros we are using for the so-called free roaming experience. It's uh, a separate room where up to four people can walk around wireless and uh, they work together, see each other in the exact correct position and uh, they can uh, work together. It's like an escape room, but again, this is what probably our dream was. It's uh, like an escape room, but more immersive. So these Vive Pros, they are attached to uh, backpack PCs that you can probably guess you can wear on your back. Virtual reality has so much more to bring to the table than regular escape rooms. And it can be appealing for both tech and non-tech users and even those people who have never heard about uh, escape rooms whatsoever. But even though the technology is evolving to the point where people can experience VR, without worrying about unplugging their headset if they move too much, 
public perception of the medium has some catching up to do. It's also difficult to advertise, as the experience can't be fully captured by any promotional video. At the like early days of VR, uh, many, many VR centers were using something like Galaxy, uh, Samsung Galaxy attached to a headset, which is not even really close to what uh, technology can do right now. But because they had this previous experience or they heard of someone who had this previous experience, uh, they're quite reluctant to try it uh, later. Because they, they've all seen you know, funny videos of people tripping cables and uh, falling down, but uh, that never happens at our place because we uh, placed, uh, you know, we, we, we placed the headsets, we built the wall, soft walls the way that uh, is the safest uh, for the customer. One big issue is that no matter how good your marketing video is, it will never ever explain how good the experience is. Mostly because, yes, you see those graphics or whatever, but you will never experience the way, the way you feel inside, inside the headset. When I first tried one of the games, uh, I was blown away just by the fact that I can see my real, well, virtual hands, and I can turn them around and look at them, and, and they would do, uh, like, and whenever I make a step, I'll make a step in virtual reality as well. So those aspects, you can't really explain them in a video, no matter how good, good it is. For Alex, VR's publicity problems can be helped by having centers, like DNA VR, showcase its potential. Not just for gaming, but for immersive training. It can even be used to teach high school chemistry. Centers such uh, as ours and around the world, uh, they help tackle this uh, more or less negative view of, of virtual reality uh, because they show how it can help people, how it can, uh, well, how good it is for entertainment, but also how great it could be for other things as well, from education and art to even like being used in, I don't know, uh, surgeons' trainings or pilots' training. There is a lot of potential in education. For instance, this uh, relatively new product that we've just signed, uh, it lets you gather like 20 uh, pupils in the same virtual classroom. And the teacher is uh, explaining very uh, like, uh, the concepts that are very, very hard to explain. Uh, it's about chemistry and the spins and how if you put this amount of protons and neutrons, uh, how the element would look like, etc. But instead of looking at the picture, you build those elements yourself with like basically holding protons in one hand and uh, neutrons in the other hand, etc. And it makes the experience not just way more interactive, but you can immediately see what changes, how the element would perform under different conditions, etc. So, we've seen how VR centers provide a space for people to experience VR in all its forms, be it education, training, or video games, in a social environment. But, as the technology becomes more recognized and popular, Cheaper headsets are emerging on the market, potentially removing one of the key obstacles to each household having their own VR set. But even if home-based VR can't match the experience that VR centers currently offer for now, this may change as budget VR headsets become more powerful. 
could VR centers eventually dwindle at the hands of home systems, as did the arcades of the 1980s? For now, VR center owners aren't too concerned about the potential threat posed by home VR, as reproducing the experience they can provide in a home environment doesn't come cheap, and console-based VR systems will most likely appeal only to those who already own those consoles. It's similar to, say, um, the cinema. You know, lots, you know, lots of people have got very large TVs, lots of people stream stuff on Netflix and Amazon, yet for all, it doesn't seem to have had a huge impact on the cinema. Cinemas are still going strong because people love um, 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 experiencing things at a different scale. And we've, we've also got here downstairs, we've got some PlayStations hooked up to projectors. And kids, or anyone, love, they love coming to play here because they're doing something on a massive screen. Uh, or, you know, um, with, with our VR aspect is the fact that we can have six people in the same game. Uh, something that, you, whilst you could do it at home, not all of your friends are necessarily going to go out and spend thousands of pounds on, on gaming PCs and, and VR headsets. VR centres, arcades, whatever you want to call them, um, I think they've got a place, uh, just like um, other types of entertainment. You know, just down the road from us, we've got a, a board game cafe. And when that first opened, I, I was like, yeah, I can't see that working. And uh, when I speak to the owners there, I've said to them, well, what's the most popular games? And they still say Monopoly, Cluedo and, and Scrabble. All games that most people have got at home. But people still love to come out, sit around a table, socialise together, be out of the house, have someone, bring them a drink or a snack or whatever it is. Potentially the future's fairly bright for this kind of business. If, if we kind of stay ahead of the technology yeah, and always, always have something um, on offer that, that the, the home market may not necessarily buy into straight away. There's quite large, uh, you know, quite significant barriers to home adoption, which is, um, you know, things like cost and space. Um, not only that, I mean, you know, to, in, in terms of like the cost, um, you've, if you're going to do room scale, you've got to have uh, a huge great tonking PC with a graphics card to boot. Um, and so a lot of people that are at home potentially already, you know, have consoles. Um, so the natural progression for that is ultimately to just upgrade uh, the systems that they've already got. And this is kind of where you're seeing, uh, you know, uh, Sony PSVR uh, leading the way in terms of sales and, and growth in that respect, because so many people have... Uh, PlayStations at home, that's just a small amount, incremental amount to actually be able to upgrade. And, and then all of a sudden you've got VR at home. HTC are bringing out um, you know, untethered headsets. You've got Oculus that are basically bringing out their untethered headset. Um, not, not as, as powerful um, as, say, the, uh, the Rift and the Vive, but you know, that, will, that will bring the, the price down quite significantly. I don't think that necessarily reflects Good VR, it just happens to be that that basically, you know, your 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 cost, your your cost to actually adopt VR is actually a lot less than say having to buy it outright and buy the computer and buy the headset. You know, if you're looking at a Vive Pro, it's it's about twelve hundred quid. If you then want the the wireless adapter and all the bells and whistles, then you're adding another three hundred quid on 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 top of that again. So by the time that you've actually, you know you know, forked out everything, plus try and find the space, you're looking in the region of about four to five thousand pounds.
I, I think it'll become a bit of both, to be fair. I mean, you know, people still, uh, people still have computers at home and yet they still go to these esports events. You know, it's, it's, it's based on the social, intact, uh, the social interactivity of, of being able to still, uh, you know, to, to play on these platforms, but then being able to go to a, a venue and being able to see your friends and experience it together. For Michael Fester, Director of Distribution at VR Developer Servios, large-scale home adoption is still a long way off. There are three real roadblocks into mass adoption. One is it's expensive and the hardware that's tangential to it is expensive. Two, it requires a lot of space, which uh, many people, even well-off people, don't have. You know, not a lot of people have a 100 foot, 100 square foot area to safely do VR. And the third part is it's not as simple as, uh, as a mobile phone where you can just boot up Candy Crush and play it with no questions asked. There's a lot of hardware. The software is still very new, so it's very, you know, buggy. Uh, and these things make it very difficult to get VR into your home. People got televisions in their home. And naysayers said the whole movie theater industry was over. And there are still a lot of movie theaters, and they are doing pretty good. So just because there's a new way to consume a media does not mean that the other way or the older way is going to go away or anytime soon. For those who run VR centers, the future rests in location-based entertainment, or LBE, a freer, more multiplayer environment where players can move together and untethered within a large space, the kind of space that only a sensor can provide. The recent Void Star Wars experience, Secrets of the Empire, in which you were thrown into a laser gunfight in a familiar and beloved setting, has shown that this can even be done in the fictional universes people recognize, know, and love. You've got the location-based uh, entertainment, which is like uh, Zero Latency and, uh, and The Void um, with Star Wars. Um, and, and, and those kind of immersive experiences, um, you know, I, I would expect to see more of them, for sure, as people are moving kind of more towards uh, being entertained you know, and the, chain, and the paradigm shift in terms of like how people are entertained. You know, it's not just like going and seeing films now. Um, the people actually want to be in it and have that kind of POV aspect of, it, of actually being inside the content. VR centers will have to come up with uh, a value proposition that, that really sells the experience. So whether it will be a massive 20 people multiplayer experience in a warehouse, or whether it's them investing in the intellectual property. I think we are already thinking about how we're going to address the situation when everybody owns a headset. Maybe it's not going to be for another three to five years. Maybe it will be. We, we, we don't know. But we are obviously thinking already about this situation and how we can change our value proposition so our, our customers are happy and they want to come back. Judging by what our customers um, um, like to do, we get a lot of people wanting to play multiplayer games. Right? Um, and, 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 and because it's great to play together, whatever it is. Right? Uh, so I think uh, getting away, and then you can already do this, but you can get away from the tethered headset, um, get away from having, say, gaming PCs, um, gaming laptops on your back, and it all becoming more Wi-Fi enabled. 
um, and more free roaming. So there are companies that have started to venture into that. And I think there's a place up in London that you can do it, but it's still quite expensive to do. But more of that kind of um, live, being in the experience together, feeling that you're not wearing thousands of pounds of heavy kit on you as well, uh, I think is where it might go. I'm keen to see more games where even, and where, where you might be, um, might be related to say a, a film. Yeah, so I'd love for Marvel to bring out a whole series of VR games. And I know and Marvel and Disney and other companies have started to look into these sort of things. They haven't really said very much, but I'd be surprised if they didn't venture into it a bit more. Um, because I think uh, um, people would love to play out roles in movies or play out the character, their favourite you know, Marvel character. So I know we, we, we've, we've, we've got things like, um, um, I've got Star Trek bridge crew on the machines. We don't actually sell it to do that for the public. But I know people have asked about it. And, people, and I know I love sitting on the bridge of the Enterprise. And the first time I said engage the warp drive, I thought you know, I had the biggest smile on my face. And it, was, you know, it's just, and it kind of comes back to living uh, the experience or acting out something that you really enjoy. This recognition factor is key for drawing people into a virtual realm, fueled by possibly unfamiliar technology. People respond to the promise of seeing characters they recognize, and maybe even living these characters' experiences. If you're trying to attract a mass audience, you have to do it with something they understand. VR tech is not understandable. So that's not really the sell. The sell, again, is who do you get to be that you otherwise couldn't be, and the big sell, when, the, when you add the IP factor in, is now you get to be someone you've always wanted to be, someone that you've known from the time you grew up. So IP is great for getting people into a location that otherwise might have been unconvinced to go there in the first place. So I think we're going to see uh, the LBE market is going to grow, and I think we're going to start to see a lot more IP being uh license out to developers to create these experiences, whether it's going to be another game that Servios makes, or it's going to be something that's very tailored for a warehouse-style experience like Avoid or Zero Latency. I think that's going to be a big trend into 2019. One major game company has already made the first steps into large-scale location-based entertainment. Ubisoft has incorporated their popular Assassin's Creed franchise into virtual escape room Escape the Lost Pyramid, which is now available at select VR centers and is proving popular. We spoke to Cyril Voiron, the project's executive producer. At the very beginning of the game, we used the uh, Assassin's Creed lore about the Animus, and basically we sent you back as an explorer at the bottom of a very big pyramid where you need to find the exit, and the exit is at the very top. Basically, so the experience you got in one hour is your journey from the very bottom of the pyramid up to the top. Then there's nothing better than to maybe take you back in time, take you back in a place which, uh, uh, if you want to be trapped, is probably a very scary place. You know, being locked in a pyramid, I think it's something that everybody can actually relate to. Um, and uh, actually make you uh, interact this, in this uh, in in this environment by really moving it around. That's part of the reason why we wanted uh, and we are very happy uh, to, to use the Assassin's Creed license. But as we say, it's not an Assassin's Creed game in the sense of you're not playing an assassin. Uh, 
you're not here to assassinate people, you're really in the world. So it means that if you have no idea what Assassin's Creed is, uh, is all about, it will not be an issue for you. I think uh, you will be able to enjoy the experience very naturally. The free roaming aspect of Escape the Lost Pyramid, in which players move untethered and use basic movements to interact with its world, means that those without a background in video games can grasp the mechanics quickly. Anybody, even somebody who has never played game, who is not a gamer, who maybe doesn't like tech, if you put him a VR headset, uh, if, if he puts a VR headset on, he knows how to work. Basically, it means that he's going to be able to evolve uh, in actually our games and in our world, which is maybe something that people have difficulties to do. VR needs this type of experience to convince people because once people have come in, and when they see it's natural, we see a kind of an increase of people wanted to come back to do another experience because they thought it was very interesting. Room scale, multiplayer, location-based experiences, like Escape the Lost Pyramid, require large amounts of space and high-end headsets and PCs to work. From the get-go, what we wanted to do is experience which were exclusively made for location-based uh, VR entertainment venues. And uh, we did that for a couple of reasons. I think one, uh, we wanted to use the best possible uh, VR technology. So we are only compatible with what is considered the best today on the market, which are uh, whether it's the HTC Vive or the Oculus Rift. And we wanted also, uh, if you want to experience uh, VR in the best way, we wanted it to be room scale. So basically, you know, you have this space as a player in real life, you have this space around you, which is about three meters by three meters. And when you walk in real life, you actually walk in the virtual world. This is why Cyril doesn't see the VR escape room moving to a home setting anytime soon, but sees it more as a VR center only experience. After all, not many people have the spare space at home for an escape room, VR or otherwise. It really has to be in a, in a particular venue. And uh, mainly because, uh, you know, when you play as a four player, you need four room scale. If room scale needs to be uh, three meters by three meters, so you need like, uh, you need a massive room to be able to play together. And this will not be easily done uh, at home. Uh, so it has, to be, uh, it has to be outside. There's no other way to actually play it nowadays. And to create a truly immersive VR experience, immersive audio is vital. You need to hear the sounds of things moving around you as you would in the real world. So a noise closer to you not only has to be louder, but you need to be able to hear where in the virtual world it is coming from. For Michael Fester, VR lends itself to an immersive sonic experience much more than standard PC gaming. Uh, you know, when you play PC games, you can have surround sound, but you know, you have a speaker coming at you from 15 feet behind you. When you're in virtual reality with spatial audio, let's say you're playing raw data, you don't just know that there's a robot coming up behind you. You know exactly where that robot is coming up behind you, and that gives you a tactical advantage. So not only does it give you presence, it also improves your performance in the game because you now have an audible cue that you otherwise probably wouldn't have had. And in an escape room where you have to work together with your friends to get out, the collaborative nature of the experience meant that sound was of vital importance to Cyril and his team. Sound has a, has a critical role in our game in two different reasons. One, because uh, it's all about uh, talking. So basically, uh, in the game, you go there as a group. And one of the difference we think we wanted to have from a typical um, escape room is you can't solve it alone. 
It means that at the end of the game, there's not somebody who can solve it for you. Everybody needs to participate in an equal way. And the way to actually find what to do, you will only find it out if you talk to one another. So you have to talk. Uh, same if you take an object, if you take one of the torch, it's one of the first items we give you. If you pass it around your head, you will actually hear the torch go from the front to the back of your head. So you can feel that uh, the sound is actually turning around you. And this reinforces this feeling of, uh, of uh, being there. The brain is ready to believe because uh, he, he sees everything is there. But with the sound, I think he believes it even more. And uh, I think that's something which is very, very uh, critical. So we, we do pay a lot of attention to sounds uh, in VR, for sure. Still, VR technology is coming on in leaps and bounds. And although there's a long way to go, not only video game companies, but educators and even the military are beginning to notice its potential. If the technology does become more commonplace, breaking out of the realm of video games, it could have a wide range of applications in everyday life, resulting in a greater variety of business for VR centers. It's going to be more enhanced, more, uh, like the graphics going to be better, uh, it's going to be more immersive, maybe like a multiplayer experience with no wires, a huge warehouse kind of thing. These things already exist uh so i can definitely see them just becoming better more immersive more accessible uh in terms of both in terms of like what you need to 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 uh run it and in terms of the cost as well i think that uh, for most people it's something either like the black mirror type of thing or ready player one <laughs> type of thing and ironically, it's even, uh, you know, there was this book, uh, Sapiens, and their author um, just, just uh, published another book called 21 uh, Lesson for the 21st Century. And in this book, he says something like, maybe in the future, we'll all have to have access to VR, and it might even become more important than, uh, than you know, access to fast uh, internet right now. And that it will create a, a, a futuristic, you know, a, an alternative reality we will all live in. So uh, I honestly think this is a bit exaggerated. All three, all three of them, to be honest. Um, but I think uh, that right now, for most people, the, the attitude towards VR is mixed at best, to be honest. It's still an emerging technology Um and you know, until there's a, uh, we get past this kind of threshold where there's enough devices that are out in the wild. I think, you know, it's 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 going to take some time for sure. I mean, I think you know, at the last Oculus event, they were saying that it was like they'd they'd hit a million uh, headsets, which wasn't that great, I don't think. But um, you know, once they build up the ecosystem, I think it would be fair to say that you know, people will still be wanting to do it in arcades. Uh, and it will be more widely accessible by doing it in an arcade than trying to buy it, say, for home. That's having a huge impact with the number of industries. Um, and it's, it's basically becoming the norm uh, to kind of convey uh, ideas, concepts, and, you know, things like training um, within those industries. So anything from, like, military and defense, medical, um, you know, engineering, architecture, all that kind of stuff. Um, and even to the point where... Um, you know, people are using VR for um, 
you know, big data analytics. So, I mean, it's, it's, it's becoming ingrained. I mean, it's only a matter of time before these various things trickle down into kind of, you know, the consumer um, verticals as well. I think it's just a, a novelty to some extent. Yeah, a lot of people that come in they just you know, want to try it out, see what it's all about. Um, I think it's got a lot, quite a long way to go yet. Um, the the big gaming firms are only really starting to take notice of VR. So there's a couple of companies that have Servius and Ubisoft. They've done you know, and they've they've kind of moved into the se sector, produce some very good games of high quality with great mechanics in them. Um, the, game, the producers of Arizona Sunshine, again, you know, um, they've added more to that game. Uh, it'd be interesting to see what else they do in the future. I think VR's got opportunities in training, um, uh, certainly in education. I can see how, you know, we took one of our units to um, the Sanders Dead community group. So there was a bunch of uh, uh, people who were retired and they loved it because um, they got to experience being underwater or, or got to experience what it was like to be on the Apollo 11 landing. Uh, so there are, there are lots of aspects that I think VR and AR will, will contribute to uh, popular culture over the, you know, over the years. Before you go, we want to hear from you. If you'd like to let us know what you think about our show, please take the quick survey in this episode's description. It'll help us make the immersive audio podcast even better. We really appreciate your feedback. You've been listening to the Immersive Audio Podcast, hosted by Alex Bragg, with guests Mike Backus, Anthony Nixon, Alexander Sirupa, Michael Festa, and Cyril Voron. A huge thank you to all of our speakers who gave us more in-depth knowledge to the world of VR. If you want to find out more about them individually, be sure to check the show notes on our blog. This episode was produced by Oliver Cadell, Alex Bragg, Felix Thompson, and Michelle Chan, with the help of Abigail Bertram and Shane O'Hare, and included music by Hare Fairlight, Mikey Gager, Young Kool-Aid, and Nobs Bergamo. If you can, head to our page on iTunes and leave us a review and rating. It really helps us out in pushing our show further. The podcast is also available on Spotify, SoundCloud, and Stitcher. Visit 1618digital.com to access the show notes and other episodes. Follow us at 1618digital on Twitter and Instagram. Thanks for listening.